from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So when I got asked to, to come over here and speak on, on autonomy, right, the, the first really question is, if, if autonomy is the answer, really what is the question, right? It, it, it really is very fashionable these days because everybody is working in some field in autonomy and everyone's solving the entire problem. But in fact, as, uh, as you're aware, it's a very difficult problem to solve. So in order not to really broaden the, the problem too much, one must understand what is it you're trying to, to solve. In our case, really, the, the, the question as it relates to the, the rotorcraft of the size that Scorsk aircraft builds, and keep in mind the, the S-76 there is the smallest rotorcraft we build and probably will ever build, right? That is a 10,000-pound, you know, 10 to 12-passenger, non-triple asset. If we're ever to fly something like that with or without human beings on board, we would obviously expect it to be reliable, non-trivial or useful to our customers. So really the, the question that, uh, that we're trying to answer, first and foremost, is how does autonomy help humans? And uh, again, I, I know it sounds maybe a little bit different, a little weird, because in today's world you see a lot of drones, a lot of uh, talk about getting rid of pilots, but uh, let's face it, right? Pilots really aren't in these platforms just to sort of wiggle sticks, if you know what I mean, right? They are there to run the mission, a very, very difficult mission. And these machines, put pilots in harm's way by their nature, right? We all know that the primary job of these machines is to do what you see in the pictures, right? Is to operate in cluttered environments, in difficult missions. In a lot of the incidents and accidents that I've investigated over the years, the answer really is, you know, a lot of times we see the term pilot error, but quite frankly, I don't know any pilots, and if they're in the room, please correct me, who wakes up every morning and says, you know, today I'm going to make a pilot error. That doesn't happen, right? What happens is... We take highly trained human beings, we're giving these capable machines, and we put them in a very, very difficult conditions. And when you actually look at the chain, right, the usual the answer at the end of the chain is what else did you expect to happen? Right? If you can't see, if you get into brownout, if you're task saturated and overloaded, the typical results are what we typically see in these incidences. So we really are in these machines pushing humans to their limits. So when we look at autonomy, and again, you heard my background, is really flight controls, and I believe autonomy really is the next evolution of a flight control system. It's what flight controls is where it grows up, so to speak, is to help human beings. And after that, we can talk how many human beings you want on board and whether for some missions it makes sense to have them on board at all or not. That's really how we are framing that, that particular question. If you look over the last 25 years, right, and, you know, I'm sure every company you know, Sikorsky included, does this, right? We, we look at what affects our industry and what kind of accidents we experience. If you look at this chart, right? I'm not going to bother letting you read this eye chart, but trust me when I say that that particular pie is mostly related to human beings, right? It's not mechanical failures. Our machines are very reliable. And by our, by the way, I mean the entire industry. We, we've learned how to build rotorcraft and helicopters that, that are pretty good, right? This is all things like control flying terrain, loss of awareness, power management, thing, things that can and should be addressed by autonomy and automation. So when we set out with our matrix program, or really our autonomy program, that, that was the thing that we went after first. And after that, you know, the, the, the sky is the limit, so, so to speak. So interestingly enough, uh, if you're not familiar with an S-92, we, we just achieved over a million hours, right? We have a fleet of over 350, right? So heavy aircraft, 19 passengers, mostly offshore oil, although there are a whole bunch of VAP aircraft out there, as well as Coast Guard and other SAR machines. It's a very, very, very safe machine. It, its level of safety are really approaching that of a typical jet. So... We did it. We, we got our five to ten times improvement when we designed S-92 or about 20 years ago, right? So it's a, it's a fairly old, old helicopter. To get to the next level of safety improvement, you really have to do it through, through really good tech, right? We, the sort of the low-hanging fruit are gone. The engines are reliable. The drive systems are our system. We know how to build structures. We're there, right? The next thing really is making intelligent aircraft, 
and getting to the next level of safety. And interestingly enough, right, this, this very, very safe fleet, the, the last incident that, again, that we unfortunately had was a Coast Guard helicopter actually here. Right? It was an Irish Coast Guard. And that, unfortunately, was CFIT, Controlled Flying Terrain. A, a, again, a highly trained crew under adverse conditions flew the rotorcraft right into the lighthouse. Right? Unfortunately, the particular lighthouse was nowhere on, uh, on any map. It was not on a terrain warning system, which this rotorcraft has. And for a variety of reasons, which you can go look up at the, in, in the accident report, right? there was miscommunication with the crew, and the crew was tired. They didn't realize it was there, and incident occurred. It's, it's unfortunately poster child of, of the kind of things we're having today that we want to absolutely stamp out and prevent. So now when you get to actually saying, OK, so, so that's what we're going to go do. How does one do this, and why is this so difficult? So I often say, you know, being a rotorcraft, is kind of like the worst of both worlds. And what I mean by that is this. So if you are a fixed wing or a high flyer, right, you typically operate from a fairly structured environment, right, airports, runways, things like that. You take off, fair little clutter. Yes, you have to avoid sometimes things along the way. But by and large, you know, you know what's going on, you know what you're doing. There's very few safe states at those high speeds. But again, you, you are up on the way. Typically, pulling up, getting out of the clutter, and flying straight and level is a safe state. So on to my favorite industry, the automotive industry, who, who thinks they will have this problem solved tomorrow, in case you're wondering. The next generation of cars won't have steering wheels, if you listen to everybody. And it's been going on for the last you know, 15 years. And yet, I still see cars with a steering wheel. And the reason for that is because it's a very complex environment, right? We all know, just try to walk outside, and we know we did, right? Especially being used to driving on, on the other side of the road. You look the wrong way and, uh, you know, your history. So it is a very, very chaotic environment. So designing a computer system to deal with that, that, that works with sensors, is very difficult. On the plus side, fairly low speed, and coming to a standstill is almost always a safe state. Now, not always. Because, again, out there you know, on M4, if you stop in the middle of the road, that's probably not a safe state. But still, can't be dealt with. So now let's pick rotorcraft, right? As I said, I, I think it's the worst of both worlds. So we happen to be airborne, but we are in a complex environment. At really critical junctures of our missions, we tend to, to hover. We go to unprepared locations. Right? Many times we don't go to airports, we'll go from airports, but the place where we're going is sometimes unknown. Sometimes you have to go find landing zones and figure out what's going on over there. When you get there, there's very few safe states. Right? A lot of times even hover is not exactly an option. So now you have to design a computer system and a sensor system that works in that environment. That's not a trivial problem. And again, if you're going to try to solve the entire thing without some limits, it will take a very, very long time and a lot of money. So that's what we, we have tried very carefully to pick parts of a mission, automate parts of a mission, and to get them to the field. And via sort of spiral development, we'll eventually get to a full solution. So that gets us to what we call matrix or the Sikorsky Atomic Program. When we started this, right, first and foremost, we said, we're going to focus on two pilots. And the reason for that is, right, so these missions that are flown with two pilots, again, you know, they really aren't flown with two pilots because of a helicopter workload. They are flown with two pilots for mission workload. So in that mode, our system becomes sort of a third assistant, a third pilot. It, it eliminates workload and allows these two pilots to run even more and more complex missions. Also helps a lot of our customers who really aren't ready to go to single pilot operations just yet. The next mode that our system can run in is one pilot to one operator. And you can sort of turn the dial what you want to do. And I'll show you some videos to the effect. So now the autonomy system is acting as your co-pilot. Uh, you can sort of dial how much autonomy you're allowing the aircraft and how much work you want to do. So in this mode, you can sit there. You see our chief pilot, Mark Ward, there was, was the tablet and say, I want to go here. And it will take you there. It will follow the rules of the sky. It will avoid obstacles. It will do all that. Again, with usual caveats, it is a machine, right? We are very careful not to use quote-unquote true AI algorithms, so there's no machine learning going on. There's some very complex motion planning and, and other things. But the point being is it'll get there, but 
A perfect example is if you're doing a low-altitude flight and uh, the machine has detected there's a mountain, it'll choose to go to the left. And it'll be perfectly safe. And I guarantee you that half of you in that scenario will sit there and say, why did it go to the left? I want to go to the right. And my answer is going to be, I don't know. It's going to the left, right? So the point is, the whole thing about human whim can't be accounted for. So we have ways that you can interact with the system and say, you know what, you apply the course to, to, to the left, go to the right, please. For, for no other reason than, quote, unquote, I want to do it that way. And, you know, as you folks work as pilots, you know that I want to do it that way. You hear a lot. And the last but not least, for the missions where you don't want anybody on board, you can certainly switch into zero mode, and it will go and do its thing from takeoff to landing. So, so that's what we're working on. So right now we have this particular aircraft, and I'll talk about it later, actually operating in all of these three states. We spend a lot of time in this state for the reason that it's the most difficult state to be in. Because here the autonomy system is truly acting as a co-pilot, and, and remember the whole interaction with a human, and I want to do certain things certain way, and the machine doesn't really understand why. We spend a lot of time tweaking and tuning the system so that it's intuitive, and at least if you're going to have an argument with it, it'll let you win once in a while. So our mission statement, and hopefully later in the year you'll hear more announcements from Sikorsky, right? We, we certainly want to solve the most pressing problems in VTOL domain. So we are after completely eliminating DV and CFIT accidents on our platforms. And again, we, we are you know, informally committed to that. We will hear formal announcements forthcoming to that effect. Uh, we are going after pilot workload reduction and eventually crew reduction. Let, let's face it, right? A lot of the missions of flight today with two people on board really aren't necessary to have two pilots on board. You, you could do it single pilot. Obviously, again, if you look at the Jetfire community, they have been doing some complex missions single pilot for a long, long time. Right? It's, it's time that our industry probably stepped up with assistance of, of some of these machines. And then allow our operators to really enable new missions. And again, the, the thought here is, is very similar to what's happening with sort of responsible actors in the self-driving car arena. Right? Again, if you look at most new cars, they will keep the lane, they will do adaptive cruise control, they will do many things that look like autonomous driving. They haven't, just haven't gotten to autonomous driving yet. And there's really two reasons for that. One is they don't know how yet right, for, to, to solve really the whole problem. But the other one is really is all of us. Right? I mean, who here really would get in one? Especially, you know, us being engineers. Right? <laughs> LIDARs for crying out loud, really, guys? Right? So, so when you get to that, they have to get us used to the technology, right? The, the first time on a highway when you just, just slightly letting go of the steering wheel and, and watching the lane keep do its job, right? That, that's what they want to have happen. They want us to start accepting the system. Same deal if you look at the, how antilock braking got introduced. There was actually uptick in accidents, and, and we looked at a while back, you know, back way when there was antilock braking, right, in mid to late 80s. There was uptick in accidents of antilock braking because people keep st still pumping the brake pedal because that's what they're taught. Well, guess what? That really doesn't work well with an antilock braking system. It really confuses it. So people actually kept sliding into other people more until they got used to the fact that just push the pedal and let the machine do its job. So this is the same deal. So what we want to do here is get a lot of these functions in the field as fast as possible and let our operators figure out what to do. Because, again, being an OEM, it, it's, we try. We, we all try to understand how our rotorcraft gets used, but let's face it. Every single operator does it differently, and for good reasons that make sense to them. They almost never make sense to us. So we really don't want to dictate to them how to use our rotorcraft. We want to give them the set of tools and let the operators figure out how to do it best and how to do it safe. And eventually, as they get used to this and technology starts to advance and certification advances, we will go from two crew to one crew, and I will bet you you'll see a lot of missions flown with no one on board because there's a whole bunch of boring things that our machines do that, let's face it, we really don't want to be on board for. But again, that's in the future. So that's what we are doing today. So a little bit on the how. So as I said, the, the, the big deal for us was not to make this a machine learning problem. 
Uh, and before we started this mm, six, seven years ago, we spent a lot of time canvassing folks at the DARPA Grand Challenge and working with other folks who do cars. And what unfortunately we learned from that, there is a large community that believes that you can turn any of these problems into machine learning problems. So if you're not familiar with machine learning, the concept is pretty simple, right? It's a, it's a deep, deep learning network, aka a massive curve fit, right? So I have seen examples out there of people trying to certify these things with having a car with one camera as an input, a massive deep learning system, and the output of that massive deep learning system is a gas pedal position, brake pedal position, and a steering wheel position. And they train the entire thing. The control system, the path planning, the obstacle, it all gets trained. And it quote unquote works. And by works, of course, what they mean is you can certainly drive it around the place where it was designed. And it seems to do the right thing. The first time you ask how it works, the answer is typically, I don't know. And then the second question you ask is how are you going to test it? And the answer is we're going to drive a billion miles everywhere. And if it works billion miles everywhere, it's safe. So I don't know if it doesn't make all you sure. certainly doesn't me. Because again, I, I have developed many systems where you find all these nice corner cases that, that you would have never had, except in what one particular part of an envelope where you hit it 100% of the time and it's fatal 100% of the time. So, so when we started this, we said, so how do I do this? Right? At the end, we do need some things that look like artificial intelligence. And when I say artificial intelligence, I don't mean just learning networks. Right? There, there is other classes of artificial intelligence. So we boxed them all into this box, and, and sort of very creatively, and I'll take the fault for that one. I just call it high-level intelligence, right? Sounds kind of cool. But all of these things are non-deterministic algorithms. And we do make use of a lot of non-determinism here. Especially, I'll, I'll single out path planning, motion planning. Motion planning is a difficult problem, right? Especially for, for aircraft, again, cloud environment. Not going to bore everybody to tears, but you can go read papers on things like RT star and field D star and a whole bunch of these classes of algorithms that, that are non-deterministic. They're very hard to validate, really almost impossible, but they do a good job at what they need to do. So what we did is we boxed them all in. We said, tell you what, I don't really want to go to the FAA, right? That's our US regulation authority, and have an argument on I can fly a billion hours or a billion miles, or you pick your number, right, and we're safe, because that doesn't, doesn't work. And quite frankly, you know, I happen to live right near the airport. I really don't want any vehicle that was tested that way flying around my house. So we boxed them all in. We said, we're going to take this box, and again, sort of very uncreatively, call this low-level intelligence, and create monitoring algorithms. So, so these kind of boring, deterministic. I can validate them with, you know, DO-178C level A, right? So they all flight criticals. And these provide safe states, really safe spaces of operation. So think of these as n-dimensional manifolds where n is really your state space. And by state space, I don't just mean, you know, petrol and it's really how many states you want to operate in. And these algorithms just sit there and watch. And as long as the aircraft falls within these n-dimensional manifolds, life's great. They do absolutely nothing. As soon as you start to approach one of these edges, you know, the algorithm starts kind of telling whoever the offending actor here is that, hey, you're getting close to this particular limit. Do something. And if nothing gets done, they just take control away. And they return the aircraft back to a safe state. This is very similar to things like burn reflex. Right? And think about in the morning, you're half asleep. You put, go put your tea on. Right? You have a mission. You're cooking breakfast. And you're half asleep, and your finger touches the stove. Right? Your hind brain couldn't care less about you making breakfast. It really doesn't want to get your finger burned, so it just jerks the finger right away. Right? Hence, you control back, say, okay, finger safe, now you finish the mission. That's really what this is. It's, it, it sounds kind of boring, but it does work. Getting it to work reliably and non-intrusively is sort of devil's in the details, because you really don't want the system kicking in very often, because when it does, it can be rather violent, because its job is to save the aircraft. So, Big difference between what we're doing here with autonomy versus other things. This is not a flight director. This is a full authority control system. It drives fly-by-wire. It drives fly-by-wire to its limits. So again, on our test aircraft, which is 76, it'll pull 2.5 Gs. And I know 2.5 Gs doesn't sound like much, but if you've ever been in an aircraft and you pull 2.5 Gs, you know what I'm talking about. Especially in a heavily loaded 76. You could hear blade stall and the safety pilot complaining. I'm not sure which one's worse. 
but it does work. That is how we operate in national airspace today. That's how we're going to field these systems because this allows us to go explore and field all these interesting things in here. And then on the back end, we have what we call vehicle execution agents. So again, this really is coupled with fly-by-wire very tightly. In fact, this brings fly-by-wire with it. I am personally, again, and I am biased, I'll admit it first, right? I, I was Mr. Flybar at Sikorsky. I don't believe that this should be coupled with a limited authority control system because it's effectiveness drop, drops dramatically. You could, and we looked into doing that, but this day and age, it really incorporates full fly-by-wire in it. And then there's all of this interesting stuff. So we spend a lot of time and money on this block right here, right, as the world model. So Again, being a rotorcraft, we really do need to be able to see and perceive the world. Databases aren't enough. I, as I said before, I'm sure you heard my bias. I'm not a huge believer in things like TOS. It does save lives, but when it doesn't, it really doesn't. Uh, so you need to be able to perceive the world. And doing it accurately and representing it accurately is a big, big deal, especially doing it in a certified manner. Because the other thing to realize that this particular change from sensor to sensor processing to role model becomes just as flight critical as your air data or inertial data, right? And it's a fairly foreign concept. It was even foreign concept to some of our safety folks at Sikorsky when we started doing our first fault trees, right? This immediately gets labeled as a mission system sensor and gets allocated appropriate failure rate. And we had to convince them, well, fairly easily that no, it's not, because I intend to do things like land on oil rigs when the pilots can't see. So that becomes flight critical. So this world model is holding a lot of interesting representations. It actually holds all the three-dimensional data coming from the sensors, and we use things like radars and lidars and cameras and we fuse them. It also holds metadata, a lot of metadata. So we do spend time running semi-real-time classifiers. And this is where you actually could use limited machine learning, and we do, right? If, if I can sort of not hit stuff, that's great, if I can recognize simple shapes, such as runways and helidex, it's also great. But now, if I can actually recognize buildings and start to make some sense of my mission, that's really good. And it's not flight critical, so I can actually go do that. So that's what happens right in here. And then this little sensor processing block is doing a lot of sensor voting. So again, if you look at what happens today with mission systems, right, the typical way we use things like FLIRs, right? You'll have a helicopter and you have a great big FLIR in front of it, and you have one. And if it fails, you don't have one. So that's a problem. It's heavy, it's expensive, and it's only one. I prefer a lot of inexpensive sensors, distributed aperture systems that are multi-fault tolerant. That's what that voting block is for. Now, anyone here who's done voting on things like rate signals can appreciate trying to vote on features coming out of you know, seven LIDARs at 100,000 points per second and making sure it all makes sense. And then add a little bit of camera fusion on top, like a couple of different wavelengths, you know, EOS, WEAR, and regular, for example. Uh, that block, as small as it looks, takes a lot of work. So again, we, we have actually modeled through it over six years. I, I wouldn't call necessarily a lot, of, a lot of these algorithms pretty because they're designed for performance, but they do work, and they are certifiable. In fact, we're certifying them now. And then on top here is the mission execution framework Again, unlike cars, right, cars typically have one mission, going from point A to point B. Here, we actually want to help pilots run a mission, cargo mission, medevac mission, and they're all different, right? I'm sure there's pilots in the audience, right? And you know that if I'm going to do a sea search and rescue, that's very different than delivering cargo, and it's very different than something else, right? The approaches are different, just motor operation is different. That's what these blocks are for. And we actually have several of them tailored to different missions. They're all being combined into one now, but the point is, they're very custom. And then we kind of partitioned the, the data link outside of this to say, hey, look, right, we're an OEM. You know, we have several customers for the system, and everybody wants their own data link. So we finally gave up and said, you know what? As long as we define this interface, I really don't care what's out here. Because Navy versus Air Force versus civil folks get very, very passionate, and their data link is usually the best. And quite frankly, they're all pretty bad, and you can't rely on any of them. So. This system doesn't really rely on one. The system is designed to work outside of data link coverage. So after, if you have nobody on board and you upload the mission, this aircraft will complete its mission. And if you can't talk to it from the time it took off to the time it lands, you can be assured it's going to finish the mission and land. Now, you, you can't change it en route, right? I don't want to say that this is sort of a, you know, 
semi-early version of a Terminator or any of those other scary things, right? It's an autonomy system. If it has to deliver cargo, it'll go deliver cargo. And if you can't talk to it, it'll go deliver cargo to where you told it to deliver cargo. It kind of can't do anything else. But the fact is it'll go do it. So that's, that's the system in a nutshell. Kind of just, just going a little deeper, just showing some of the things, quite frankly, I can't show, uh, that we have been doing, right? There's a lot of, so everywhere you see DALA, hopefully folks are familiar, that's uh, flight critical, DO-178C, DALA. First time we started working with a couple of LiDAR manufacturers, we told them we wanted a DALA LiDAR. They looked at me like I had two heads. I actually had to check to make sure I didn't, because like three of them did it because it's expensive. But the fact is, why else would they put a lighter on my aircraft, right? They're, they're expensive, they're complicated, and they're not DALA, they're useless. So we're getting through that right now. Uh, getting through DALA world models, and especially feature detection, fusion algorithms, right? I'll show you some examples of OZ detection. Mission plan execution, we actually had to go develop a sort of, I don't want to call it the programming language, it's a domain-specific language, where you can go describe a mission. Because this system is not a regular UAV. I, if you want to feed its waypoints, look, it'll take waypoints. But that's dumbing it down quite a bit. You, you actually feed the system goals and constraints. And that figures out the plan and other things. So for that, you need a language. So, so there is a language that, that does that. Uh, same with domain planners to come along with language. Uh, on the motion planning, again, kinematically correct motion is a must. Right? We've all seen UAVs behave like, you know, or what I like to call Mr. Robata, right? And that's because it's very simple. You can write a fairly simple D-star, run in the middle of the envelope, it'll work. It really won't be interesting. It really won't be able to complete, you know, 80% of missions, but it'll work. So, so these planners produce kinematically correct plans all the way to the edge of the envelope. In fact, some of them are designed to take it past the envelope. We, we have planners that will, you know, cook an engine or two if they have to if they think that's required to save the aircraft or complete the mission. And then we have been doing a lot of work on uh, trajectory following. In fact, that's uh, one thing in the upcoming AHS we actually plan to publish, of uh, a trajectory following algorithm that, that uses search-based methods to figure out where to go next. It solves a, a whole bunch of interesting problems of having a trajectory, you know, continuous trajectory that's either a spline or, or not, and, and picking a point on that spline that you should be going to. So the other interesting topic is knowledge capture and execution. So, so again, remember that, that word, right? Pilots just want to do things a certain way. Uh, trying to capture it and encode some of it. Uh, we actually have a whole bunch of tools in that area that uh, we've had our pilots busily encoding knowledge and we've been actually flying it. And again, it, it works to an extent. I wouldn't claim it's a, it's a full panacea of capturing knowledge, but you can add some interesting behaviors to the aircraft. As an example, after going through this exercise, flying our 76-hour local airport, one of our pilots had a strong preference for right-hand patterns during particular times of day because of sun angles and other things versus left-hand patterns. He actually didn't realize he had the preference, but as we walked him through our knowledge capture tool and he encoded a whole bunch of knowledge, made it in the aircraft, and next time it flew, he said, hey, look, it's flying the right pattern. And we actually dug into the knowledge because we have debug tools, and through the questions and, and how we structured it, we explained to him that he actually has preference for that when the sun is striking just right on this and that times of day versus left. And when we looked at all his flight data the last four years, sure enough, it was there. He had no idea he had it. He, he honestly didn't, right? Because to him it was, hey, I'm entering a pattern. I'm going to go either this way or that way. Right? No, no other thought was given. So uh, verifying that is, is interesting. Again, we have done a lot of theory-improving tools on, on how, once you capture knowledge, you can actually model it and, and at least prove some sort of completeness of, for some things. That's really more to emergency procedures, right? We, we all know, right, both pilots and engineers and everyone else in this room, right, let, let's just go ahead and say it. So all aircraft manuals are terrible from everybody, right? No, no, it's, not, it, it's, not a, it's not a thing, actually. All aircraft manuals are terrible because manuals encode engineering intent and kind of what happens to the aircraft, but operators have vastly more knowledge, right? So they generate their own manuals, but then there's also pilot community who has a whole bunch of operator experience, and you all know that you're going through emergency procedure and they'll say to do this, and they'll tell you, well, yeah, yeah, you do that, but by the way, don't forget this, this, and the other thing. 
So encoding that is very valuable. Working on continuous management and again, trying to figure out what to do when things go wrong. Because at the end, right, that's what pilots are there for. Right? That's when all the pilots right, make their money right here. It's not when things go right, it's when things go wrong. Having machine do that is very difficult. And verifying it is also very difficult, but it's, it's a necessary thing. So I'll show you some things that we've, we've done in this area. Unfortunately, one of the videos I, I couldn't get through, but I can tell you that we, we have full rotation to the ground with no a priori knowledge of landing site working, and, and as well as single engine failures throughout the envelope. And again, we intend to actually feel that shortly. Because it was interesting, when I first started working in Sikorsky almost some 20 years ago, we had a, a pilot who flew a lot of single engine helicopters, Hueys and, and things like that, and, and we were in the sim with him one day doing some controller work, and all of a sudden we were low, and he says, hey, let me show you the rotation procedure at night. Have you ever heard of it? I said, no, what? So like, here, watch this, right? So we're at 1,200 feet. This is a simulation, right? He has cut both engines. And that was a dual-engine aircraft at the time that we were simulating. So we cut both engines. He enters the rotation. He says, the deal was, he, and he was an you know, old Korean Vietnam pilot. The deal was, he says, you start a rotation, that's easy. You get down to about 400, 500 feet. He goes, and you flip on the landing light, and you look down. And if you don't like what you see, you just turn the light right off. Because, <laughs> right, what else can you do? It's a big deal. So we, we have spent a lot of time on automating that and getting algorithms working where the system will do its best to actually find you a spot that you'll walk away from. Now, I can't guarantee about reusing the aircraft afterwards, that's bonus, but at least being able to walk away from something like that is a big deal. And all of this, interesting enough, leads to a lot of HMI work. And, you know, it's one area that I, I personally had no idea 20 years ago was going to be so important. I honestly don't care. I, User interface. Anybody can design user interface, right? Everyone here can love to design MFDs and things like that. Oh boy. We spend a lot of money doing this, right? And, and, and the problem is you get into this interesting almost like a tension, if not a fight, right? Well, so the system is doing all this for me, right? And everything has to win us back, way back on. Well, an attitude indicator. Well, wait a second, what do you need an attitude indicator for? You told it to go somewhere, it's going there, everything's up and running. It's all flight critical, it's holding attitudes, holding airspeed. So fine, you're watching the attitude ball, and if you have a triplex failure and the attitude ball goes side, you know, right side up, what are you going to do? Because these don't do anything anymore in that case, right? It's a catastrophic failure. Same with engines, you know, as you talk through it, you realize, wow, a lot of this stuff, yeah, okay, makes you feel like you have control, but you really don't. So why see it? Right? The things that you have control over are trajectories, paths, and we started working a lot with costs. So this particular spire chart is where the pilot operator gets to pick what's more important. Is it speed? Is it visibility? Is it... It's the kind of thing that, right, machine will have no idea how to pick that. that. That's what machines are terrible at, right? Humans are great at making these really high-level trades on figuring out how do I run this mission and what's most important to me. I, I couldn't design an algorithm to do that. And, and I don't think with machine learning or AI, I think we're a long, long, long ways off from, from having anything like to run reliably. Quite frankly, you know, it's a philosophical discussion. I don't even know if it's necessary. But nevertheless, right, today's systems, once you give me your preferences, I can go down from that, right? The, the high-low emission set, I can run the rest of it no problem. But I have no idea how to decide that. So that's why our cockpits are starting to look kind of like this. You know, again, our pilots joke that I'm turning their helicopters into Starship Enterprise. And I keep saying, well, there's a reason for that. I mean, right, people who wrote... Starship Enterprise were fairly smart people. They thought about this for a little bit. Not to say we model everything on Star Trek, but hey, right, let's admit, I'm a geek. Most of us here are geeks, so we like Star Trek. So let's talk about uh, this aircraft just a little bit. This, uh, you know, we call it Sarah, Sikorsky Autonomy Research Aircraft. We bought it, interestingly enough, from one of our subsidiaries who does fractional ownership. In case you're curious, this was owned by like Steve Spielberg and Mr. Seinfeld at the time of what they upgrade to a newer model. But it was a 1994 conventionally controlled mechanical controls S96B, slightly worn. Right? So what we end up doing with it is we end up putting our experimental system in. There is, a, again, unfortunately can't show you pictures, but in the back there is a whole bunch of computers and actuators that, that turn this into a disengageable fly-by-wire system, right? if, you, if you can think of it that way. It's kind of like a variable stability aircraft. There's a few of them around the world. From that perspective, it's kind of humdrum. And then we start adding sensors. So there, there is a snow sensor that's uh, our own sort of design. We started with this uh, 
off-the-shelf Regal LiDAR that was very popular at the time, right? They, they were used for GIS mapping. Uh, again, uh, Mr. Regal doesn't like when I say Regal because we ripped out most of the firmware out of this thing, so this is pretty much a laser in a mirror, and uh, you know, firmware's custom. Uh, we gimbaled it, working with actually with NASA JPL folks, and we started doing experiments. This was never designed to be a production solution. It's too heavy and too expensive to be a production solution. Just, just that, that was an experiment. It remains to be an experiment. We are working on much smaller and less expensive LIDARs, and again, I'll leave it at that. But this does give us three to 4,000 feet. It has a whole bunch of different wavelength cameras on it for sensor fusion to kind of play the algorithms. And on the side of the aircraft, I have two Velodynes. They're somewhat standard, HDL32s. Again, car guys use them all the time. The idea really here was to, to work and develop fusion algorithms. This is sort of a distributed aperture. I mean, it's kind of lopsided because this guy can see 3,000 feet. These can only see about 300 feet. But in close range, when we're working with landing zones, they all do work, they all fuse. Interestingly enough, they're also different wavelengths. So for the folks here who work with LiDAR, we can actually detect things like water and other things easily enough, because one of them sees and one of them don't, and cameras help as well. Uh, because we're in national airspace, there's somewhat ugly data links, but they are unlicensed. You know, they're, they're really glorified Wi-Fi access points. Tracking data links where we can fly anywhere with them. So that's what's on the outside of this aircraft. And we, we did a whole bunch of flying. So without further ado, I want to show you some, some things that, that we've done. Uh, so just to frame this, this is a fairly old video, unfortunately. Uh, what you see there is a screenshot from our ground control station. Right? In this mode, the aircraft is operating in sort of zero pilot mode. So there's two pilots on board because well, this is right around Sikorsky. We're in national airspace, about very popular areas. So in theory, the pilots in control are pilots in control. In practice, they're alone for the ride. Um, so are we, really. I mean, we're in the ground station. We specified this, just a pattern. And the idea here is just fly around and find suitable landing zones. And here on this heat map, you'll see anything that's red is a landing zone, and anything that's blue is, is a landing zone. Anything that's red is not. So here, let's see if we can play this. <laughs> And you'll see a few things working. So you'll see, obviously, again, this is Connecticut. This is our bridge. If you've ever been to Sikorsky, the, the plant and the airfield is right here. There really is no place to go except some of these small areas. It's mostly populated or, or wooded. There's a highway. So right there, you saw a little switch. This is our planning system, understanding the, the context. We, we deal a lot with mission context. So it knew that this point wasn't terribly important to hit. It's a pattern. So it said, ah, I got close enough. I'm going to now replant to the next one. And this line right here is the local planner doing its thing, doing obstacle avoidance. Obviously, there's nothing to avoid in this particular mission. But you'll see as we come, come around, right, so this is, this is the area of regard that, that we care about. Uh, this is a highway that's turning blue. This was daytime, not many cars on the highway. So you'll see as the aircraft comes around, uh, there are buildings, and interesting enough, one of these buildings has a very nice flat roof. And uh, you'll see it shortly. It actually shows up quite nicely. Uh, we've actually tried landing in there, unfortunately, without telling people in it, which was a mistake in hindsight. Only done it once. But uh, as you can see, it, it does work. Again, this, is, this video is about mm, three and a half, four years old. So here is a more interesting one. So this is approach. And the problem here was simple. We said, hey, find me a landing spot near here. Which obviously it's an airfield, right? How hard can this be? But still, this is some of early work. So we have to clear this bridge at 500 feet, per FAA rules. This geometry forces the aircraft into auto rotation. So at this point, the aircraft is descending at about 2,800 feet per minute. And if you see how it's coming in, right, it's finding fences and other aircraft. You know, it already sees an LZ, it's going to do a little optimization. It, it only has a few seconds to really make a decision where is it it's going to go. And when the trees come into view, you'll see that it's, it's dropping fairly rapidly. Now, because of the nature of this variable stability aircraft, we do power recoveries to 40 feet. So you'll see it start doing power recovery to figure out that there is, in fact, an LZ here, and you know, it's, it's coming here. This is one of the first times we did this. So again, hopefully in the future, we'll be releasing a little more up-to-date videos that, that are a little more exciting than this. But I'll tell you something, right? Our pilots were quite excited to, to go on this particular ride. Because they, they asked me, are we going to end up in the river? And I said, well, all tests say no, but we'll see when we get there. 
So and then, of course, right, because all this was done with, with, with optical sensing, the, the actual landing, right? So, so here we are coming down. And again, four-year-old video, wheeled helicopter. The, the geometry of this aircraft is actually very interesting, right? It's fairly narrow wheelbase, tall helicopter. So those of you familiar with dynamic rollover, you know, it's fairly easy to do on this one. So we're doing our best not to. So descent rate for autonomous landing is quite low. We, we maintain about 100 feet per, per minute. Again, it's changed since then. But back then, that's what it was. It's coming down. The more interesting part is, so here you are, you found this LZ was optical means. How do you know it can support you? Uh, we did a lot of work and actually had a lot of patents. You see how it puts the main wheels down? It's actually modeling torque decrease and collective decreases, making sure that the oleo struts are collapsing appropriately. And finally, I figured it out and said, okay, now I can put the nose down. So that wasn't the pilots. That was the system. And if it was mud or water or other things that weren't supporting the aircraft, it would depart right back up. Because, right, wouldn't it be really, really bad to have this beautiful landing into, you know, 10-foot deep uh, lake? So in a couple of more recent things, okay, bear with me for just a second. So this is a more recent work we did for actual DARPA under DARPA alias program, right? So, so this program was, was looking at kitable autonomy and autonomy as a co-pilot. Uh, this video is actually on YouTube, so you see Mark Ward with a tablet. So the deal here is it's a cargo resupply mission flown completely from the tablet, right? Mark's not touching the controls, and the safety pilot here is not touching the controls either because the system's designed in such a way that if you touch the controls, the system disengages. It becomes very obvious. I just want to keep everybody honest here. So you'll see, and again, this, this version of user interface is now three years old, and it doesn't look like that anymore, but same idea that with really a few strokes, Mark can execute these fairly natural looking maneuvers. The, the aircraft can you know, line up, figure out where to go, and, and, and things like that. So obstacle avoidance, LZ selection, the autonomous auto rotation, and single engine are all in the software build, so he doesn't have to worry about any of those contingencies. He's really kind of long for the ride, right? So bet you many of you watching this and saying, wow, this is hand flown. I can guarantee you it is not. It is a very interesting motion planner that's actually, well, understands the whole Sikorsky helipad and departure procedures pretty well. So it's actually lining up for departure and off it goes. So you see things like LiDAR installing, gear control, you know, all that automatic, so LiDAR is doing its job scanning. And the aircraft departs. And the point here is to show that all the autonomy is on board. We do have a ground control station, but they, for this one, they were flying away about 40 miles. And the only reason we picked 40 miles because it was far enough that it was our direct line of sight, and we didn't really want these guys falling asleep, so felt like right about the time. There was a nice uncontrolled airport that Mark's going to, so you see this nice approach, and he'll go down to the airport, and he'll do some more tablet maneuvering to say, hey, I brought cargo, I got an external hook, I can still maneuver the aircraft, because at the end, right, the, the point of the system is, so, so fine, you can do a lot of the stuff, but how do you put the cargo down? Yeah, you could point and click on a tablet, but there are other ways of doing it. So, so that's the point is to still show agility of the terminal area while being guaranteed that the tailor is not going to hit anything, you're not going to hit any obstacles. You, know, you can do all that. So eventually he, he's going to land here. So interesting enough, during this flight, I sat in the ground control station most of the time waiting for them to come back. Because the chase aircraft had the video crew, right? We couldn't talk to them because they were very low over the horizon. So me and my entire team just sat there, literally putting our thumbs waiting for the aircraft to come home. And there it is. Now, just because I get asked this question, if you know, right, the smoke behind the aircraft is normal. This is PT-6 engines. They burn off. Uh, excess oil from one of those stages. Don't know why it was done that way, but every time we fly, somebody in the middle will ask me, are we on fire? And the answer usually is no. But So here I sort of saved the best for last. So here's a more interesting video. I think you'll certainly find it more interesting. And to set this up, I will pause it for just a second. Uh, 
one of our presidents, Mick Maurer, was a, a submarine commander, right? So one of the things that helicopters do is operate on and off ships. So a few years ago, he gave us a challenge and said, fine, guys, you, you go land on a ship, and your entire interface is a can of paint, which was interesting. So I said, okay, so do you want us to do a search problem? We'll go rent a ship, we'll put it in the worldwide ocean, and you want us to go find it? He said, no. Okay, well, then can I at least have like a low-rate data link so I can tell the aircraft roughly where the ship is so I don't have to go look for it? He said, yes. So this is the result of that. This, this was recorded from a live flight, and towards the end of this video, you'll see a shot from, from the barge. We, we couldn't really rent an LCS-1, and back when this was shot, we weren't part of Lockheed, so we weren't making LCS-1, and the U.S. Navy was a little busy. So we did the next best thing to an LCS-1, which is we rented a barge. It was 110 feet long by 40 feet wide. We painted the LCS-1 landing deck on it. It was all the Navy paints and appropriate, you know, exact paint, exact numbering and whatnot. We outfitted it with a literally cell phone data link, right? And the only job of the data link was when the aircraft gets within range, because the con-ops here is you're not going to go looking for a ship. You probably know where you're going, so you probably want to ask the ship if you can land. And so, you know, if I can ask the ship if I can land, the ship can probably tell me where it is and where it's heading. At least solves the search problem. So that's what data link's job was, is to really give us initial vectors. So from that, the only, remember the language I described? So here's a three flight two points, a maritime approach point. They're the only things that were necessary. This was done in, uh, actually in Rhode Island, in Groton. If you've been to that area, it's a very nice area on Long Island Sound. There's a lot of effluent houses right near the airport, and they really don't like helicopter noise. So these three points were set up in such a way that we avoided them. Otherwise, it's going to be a lot faster. But nevertheless, so here we go. So this is, again, two pilots along for the ride, about four of us on the ground station also along for the ride. We programmed this departure. Uh, we hit the go button. You'll see here in a second, you know, send query is what we call it. You're asking the aircraft, can you do it? The aircraft says, yeah, you can do it. So you tell it, go do it. So after this button gets hit, everyone's long for the right. We're all just watching. So again, keep in mind, this is real flight, and you'll see the video when we get to the barge. We had a person on the, on the tug with a camera, so you'll see what that part looked like. But here, here's the departure. So right off the bat, this jog is because there was a Cessna right there that we were waiting. So actually, that Cessna was across the threshold, whole short line. So here we are departing. You'll see two lines. So this is a global plan, as it's known, kind of thing you compute really quickly when you decide you're going. This is what's known as local plans. Remember the kinematically correct planner? It's doing its job. It's optimizing obstacles. And one of the things it's doing is optimizing control energy. It really doesn't like to turn. Because why? Right? It's expensive. So if you don't have to, you don't turn. It understands the fact that this particular waypoint, which is why we draw it this funny way, it's not really a waypoint. It's a goal point. It's not terribly important. It doesn't have to hit it exactly. So it's kind of doing this lazy thing. For the mathematicians in the room, this is actually a C3 continuous spline is what, how we generate this. And it kind of continues through the goal points. So again, all the affluent people live in the houses right here next to Lion Sound. And maritime approach points right here. So we're making this turn. You see it's not even planning past this point. Because it can't really see past that point. There's no point in planning there. It'll plan when it gets near it. So it's doing its thing. So right here, you'll see it approach the maritime approach point, and that's when it's going to get the blip from the barge saying, you're clear to land, here's my initial headings. And it'll do this rough computation of saying, okay, so fine enough, you know, you can see this little dot out here is the barge, because we are getting the telemetry in, in our truck. And the aircraft kind of starts going there. So now the LIDARs and the cameras are ready to go find it and, and things like that. What you'll see happen here is it'll actually make this turn. This is top of descent, roughly top of descent. And the thing is it'll start ignoring the line. So right at this point, it actually figured out where the deck is. So, so now it's no longer doing you know, computation. It's actually doing relative navigation with LiDAR and cameras. If we give it another minute, we'll have a video from the barge. So first, I have to apologize for the first 10 seconds of the video. And the person who was taking the barge, I told him that I will tell this story every time I present this video. He, he was a, a Marine 53, 53E pilot, nevertheless, and he got seasick. So while he was on the barge, we we're ready, and here's the aircraft. So, so he, he figures out eventually, but it took him a little bit. So here we go. So you see the barge. There's the barge. There's the landing deck. There's the aircraft. All right, so here we are coming in. So keep in mind, at this point, we are ignoring the data link. This is all done with LIDARs, cameras, fairly sophisticated ship model, and a whole bunch of other procedural models. The idea here was to actually come in like a helicopter, right? We didn't want to keep it too slow, stay off the 
you know, HV curve and things like that. When you see this little, there'll be a little dot that'll appear eventually here. That means it actually figured out where the centroid of the barge is. For now, it has an idea where the barge is heading for it. It's doing this fairly high approach. And eventually, it'll say, I know where right there. So now it has seen the, enough of the markings between lighters and cameras to actually figure out, hey, it's a barge. And markings look about right, and spot looks about right, so why not? And it's going to head forward. And it's doing this approach. So we are trying to pull the barge at 10 knots. The barge really didn't make 10 knots. If you look at the video, we were lucky we were making 7 knots. Half of us actually had a bet going that it was going to go underwater at some point. Uh, it did, not on this video. It actually dove like a foot and a half and killed the data link while it was on it. It was great. But on this particular run, you know, here we are. It's coming into a hover. So position accuracy is within a few feet. It's certainly good enough to land. Not make a great landing, but a landing. So we are working on actually doing a full touchdown landing. The problem is this particular project keeps going down our priority list because our current customers don't operate from ships as of yet. But uh, there's a lot of oil and gas interest. So we will resurrect this. And the thought here is we'll be doing zero, zero landings to oil rigs, guaranteed zero, zero landings to oil rigs with our aircraft. So you'll be able to You can see, right, the aircraft's following the barge, about 40 feet AGL. Yeah, you can hear Tom's comments. Here's, here's our pilot who's seasick. So this was flight number six out of the series, I believe, with a total of 10 flights. And we said, yeah, algorithms are good enough. We'll pick this back up when we actually want to put it in production. So we're, we're starting to get there. Again, talking to the FAA about how one actually certifies something like that. And again, for the pilots in the room, imagine being in something like S92, 19 people in the back. You can't see a thing. And, you know, it's giving you symbology. It sees the, the, the rig deck, and you just kind of keep your hands off the controls because nothing you can do anyway. And it'll do full touchdown landing to head, to head a little bit back. Right? I'm actually looking forward to, to that shortly. So with that, and uh, slightly off time, go ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.